6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1. Of course, the coming, the word is parousia. There are three words that you find used that are almost equivalent, but yet... By the way, the other thing I want you to carry away from our studies is a respect for precision. If you adopt the policy that there are no such things as absolute synonyms, you'll be very close to the truth. Things you think are synonymous usually turn out to be not quite synonymous, and often in the distinction is a very important distinction. There are three terms you encounter about the appearance or unveiling or presence of Jesus Christ. The first one is parousia. That's what's being used here. And that's with His presence, in effect. Parousia. That lays emphasis on the very presence of the Lord with His people. Okay. Another word is epiphania. That's the manifestation of the power and love of God. That occurs in a number of passages. And then, of course, there's apocalypsis which really means the unveiling or the revelation of God's purpose and plan in the second coming. All three of these are used in one way or another in the second. The word here is parousia. It means it's, actually, it's emphasized His presence. The presence of the Lord Jesus. And by our gathering together unto Him. And that, of course, I, I assert, is referring to the rapture, the rapazzo. We've just gotten through 1 Thessalonians, which really elaborated on that concept. By our gathering together Him, He's referring to the Harpazo, as was quoted in chapter 4, verses 15 through 17. And our being forever with the Lord thereafter. Remember in John 14, I go and prepare a place for you, and bring you to Myself, and with Me there ye shall be also. In Matthew 24, and Mark 13, that is also emphasized. Okay, our gathering together unto Him. Okay, get to the second verse. This is very pivotal of our understanding of this entire letter. Paul is writing them, that ye be not so soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of the Lord is at hand. Your Bibles may say day of Christ, that's a mistranslation. The word is not Christos, it's kurios. It's day of the Lord. For some reason the King James has that twisted. But anyway that ye be not so soon shaken in mind. These people were upset. That's why Paul is writing the letter. Because he's in Corinth, he's heard that they've gotten all upset by something, by spirit, someone speaking prophetically, or by word, or by letter as from us. Either they had a letter that is a forgery, or someone is claiming that they had a private letter from Paul saying such and so. The point is, though, they're all upset. They're so upset that Paul feels compelled to write to them. Why? That ye be not so soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, and so forth. Okay. This is the first aorist passive infinitive of sileo, which means to agitate, to cause to totter like a reed. They're being 
he expected them to be more stable. They're not being stable. They're upset. And he's trying to respond to that. Why are you so troubled by spirit, by word, or a letter from us that the day of the Lord is at hand? Nor by letter as from us. Apparently, this whole thing has been prompted by the circulation of a spurious letter, either actually or by hearsay. Apparently, an intentional forgery, fretting that they were that they were already in the day of the Lord. Now, what you want to, when you study the coming chapters, what you want to try to answer, answer the question for yourself, what is it that they're upset about that caused Paul to have to write this letter? They have come to a conclusion that's got him upset. And Paul's going to try to straighten that out. But you won't understand him straightening it out until you understand what it is that they're upset about. You with me? You often don't understand the answer to a question if you know what the question is. So what is it they're bothered by is one of the questions that lurks behind our study here. One of the things we discover is that they think that they are already in the day of the Lord. Now I'm going to offer a suggestion, a possibility. If they were post-tribulationists, they wouldn't be upset. They wouldn't mind. I mean, they wouldn't, wouldn't like persecution, but that would cause them to be, boy, it's getting closer. No, they're upset because they think that they've either been mistaught or something's wrong because they didn't expect to be in the day of the Lord. Now, the persecutions they have haven't started the day of the Lord. They don't know that, right? But that's, a, that's going to turn out to be an important factor. How do you tell? He's going to show them next time. Why would that bother Christians in Thessalonica? You need to, you need to come to terms with that to really understand what we're getting into here. See, Paul had plainly said that Jesus would come as a thief in the night. And had shown that the dead would not be left out in the harpazo. Okay, so had the harpazo happened? Apparently not. And yet, the day of the Lord has started. That contradicted their understanding of the eschatology. So Paul is going to straighten them out. But you need to understand what he's straightening out, because we're all going to have that same concern. Evidently, Someone claimed to have a private epistle from Paul which supported the view that Jesus was coming at once, as that the day of the Lord is now present. And Paul's going to say, no, it's not, and here's why. You with me? But underscoring both of their views, the view that Paul had and the view that they should have, it's a pre-tribulation view. That means the rapture will come before the great tribulation. Not that there won't be tribu the, you know, persecution, tribulation, small t, but that Great tribulation, which has a specific definition, we'll deal with next time. So he continues, that ye be not so soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, that the day of the Lord shall be hand. Now that day of the Lord is not what your King James says. It says the day of Christ, and because it's mistranslated, you miss the point. It's the day of the Lord. Yes, it's the day of Christ, but it's the day of the Lord as a, a label for a period of time about which the Bible says a lot. It's a major preoccupation of the book of Joel. It's a major disclosure by Christ himself in Matthew 24 and elsewhere. But the, the actual Greek uses the word kurios, which is the day of the Lord. And that helps us link that all together, if you will. So let's talk a little bit about eschatology. We're going to get into an area and we're going to tell you why we hold certain views. I, don't, I want to underscore again and again, that doesn't mean we're right. We're going to try to share with you why we hold certain views. We're anxious for you to develop your own tools and background and perspective to come to your own conclusions. 
And if we share with you our view, it's only for, it's for two reasons. To show you our methodology on the one hand, and to be helpful in terms of saving some effort on another. But we want to, we, we're anxious to raise up what we call self-feeders. That's what the Institute's all about. We have a common statement of faith that's in our handbook. That is something I think all of you will agree with. But on, on top of that, may the Spirit be with you. So, but the rapture is not a doctrine to argue about. It's a doctrine to live. We should live in the moment-by-moment -moment expectation of His return. He's taught us to do that. Some believe that He's coming after the tribulation. We don't, but some very good people do. Feel that way. Some believe that He's coming before the tribulation. We side with those people. Some believe that He's coming during, or as they're sometimes called, mid-tribulationals. Each one of these has very notable scholars in their camp. And we're not here to disparage any one of them. And we'll show you why we hold the views we do to be helpful, not to sell them particularly. But the real question is, how does your interpretation affect your life? Does it do anything for you? That's the key question you need to ask yourself continually. If your view has no effect on your life, then you might reconsider what you believe. Because they're intended to have an impact on your life. There's a passage in Luke, chapter 18, verse 8. It's in effect an elliptical quote from Isaiah 63. But it says, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Ooh, that's a disturbing question. The Greek there requires a negative answer to that rhetorical question. When he returns in power, will he find a faithless world? That seems to be the suggestion. Okay. Now let's talk a little bit about what we know about a prophetic profile from Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Jesus wrote seven letters to seven churches, and you want the most important book of the Bible, the only book in the Bible that has a promise to the person that reads it. No other book of the Bible has the audacity to say, read me, I'm special, what one book does. The book of Revelation. The most important sentence in that book is the first sentence. It's the unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. Unto whom? Jesus Christ. And he, Jesus Christ, gave it and signified it, signified it to his servant John. But it's a revelation to Christ. Wow! No wonder it's high language. No, and, and everything's in code, but every code is explained somewhere else in the Bible. That's what makes it such a treasure hunt. The most important chapters of the book of Revelation are chapters 2 and 3. Chapter 1 is a vision of Christ. We learn a lot from it. That's great. Chapter 4 on is yet future. John says, I was in the Spirit on the day of the Lord. He's transported future. And chapter 4, verse 1 on is post-rapture. I'm not going to try to prove it here. But the point is, the most important part of the most important book is chapter 2 and 3, which is seven letters that Jesus wrote. We're studying Paul's epistles. These are seven epistles by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And they're to seven churches. Why these seven? Because they're representative in some very mystical ways. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And when we study these, they have four different levels of meaning, we discover quite clearly. But one of the most astonishing ones is they lay out a 
profile of church history in advance. If they were in any other order, it wouldn't be true. But as we study each one and understand each one, we're astonished to discover they profile. Ephesus was the apostolic church, the challenge of that first century. Sound on doctrine, but they lost their first love. Smyrna, the suffering church, suffering death, heavily so. What Satan couldn't accomplish by persecution, he accomplishes by having them marry the world. Pergamos. Bigamy is married to two. Maganami married to one. Pergamos is married to per in a perverted marriage. Pergamos, the married church. The church marries the world. Wow. We could go on and on about that. Thyatira is the medieval church. The church that inherits that, those traditions carries us through a period we call the Dark Ages. And we have Sardis, the denominational church. You have a name that you live, but you're dead. That's Jesus calling that. It's one of two churches that had nothing good said about it. Now, Thyatira is the Vatican, Sardis is the Reformation. Ooh, that hurts. Denominational church. Philadelphia is the missionary church. Everybody that studies these knows that they're the Philadelphia church. Okay. No, there's parts of all of them in all of us. The last one is the apostate church. And need I tell you where we are? You want to make a guess where we are? Now, we discover as we study these carefully that the first three have something strange. The promises to the overcomer are postscripts. Every, every letter has a special promise to the overcomer. But in the first three, they're postscripted. In the last four, they're in the body of the letter. That tells us of nothing else. The last four are somehow special. We learn something else. The last four have explicit references to the second coming of Christ. Ooh, now we're learning something. We discover one of those four has an explicit promise that if they don't wake up, they're going to be in the Great Tribulation. Wow, that tells us something. One of them has a promise that it will be removed prior to the time of that tribulation. A couple of others are rather problematic. So we're going to get into more of this next time. But where are we, do you think? Anyone think we're someplace other than Laodicea? Then if we're in the Laodicean church, <laughs> they think they're rich and have need of nothing. You hear these health and wealth prophets you hear them on television, do you read, just remind you, remember, they're, they're, that's scriptural. That they would, you know, be rich and feel they have need of nothing. Anyway, we'll move on here. There's a, an epistemological cycle. Now, epistemology is the study of knowledge, its scope and limits. It asks the question, how do we know something? Well, there's a, an epistemological cycle in theology you might be interested in. I've shown you how that your hermeneutics, your theory of interpretation, will determine your eschatology. You tell me what you believe, what, where are you on the scale of hermeneutics? You take the Bible very seriously, that will, I, I can predict where you'll end up coming out eschatologically. Okay. A, a link that may surprise you, it surprised me when it first pointed out to me, is that eschatology will determine your ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is a study of the church, the mystical church. And you won't really you can just study all the doctrines you like. You won't really understand that unless you understand how it fits eschatologically. When your eschatology solidifies, the ecclesiology comes into focus. And that's what we just went through. Okay? Well, as a, to close the link, your ecclesiology, your understanding of the church will determine your hermeneutics. The church you worship in, does it use a paraphrase? The message? 
Is it an NIV church? Or is it in an NASB church? You know, in other words, your environment there will determine your hermeneutics as to which things you use. Now, is the King James Version better? No, 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 no. It's a, there's few that have its majesty, but that's not why we use it. It's that the problems are well understood and well documented. The others are still being discovered. Because again, that impacts your hermeneutics, which affects the whole cycle. Because your hermeneutics will impact your eschatology, which will sharpen your understanding of ecclesiology, which in turn will drive you more and more to taking a higher view of the text itself. As you discover more and more its supernatural characteristics. Thought you'd be interested in that. In any case, all of these always point to what? The Messiah. You betcha. Okay. Well, we made it, gang. So next time, I want you to study chapter 2. But as you do, I want you to come to your own conclusions about what it was that was upsetting him so much that Paul had to write 2 Thessalonians. Was it that they had missed the rapture, or was it something else? Or is it that Paul taught them falsely? Maybe they thought he was misteaching them. These are questions I want you to answer for yourself. And I, obviously you can infer that if they were post-trib, they wouldn't have been upset. So it tells you something about the eschatology that they were embracing, or they wouldn't have been upset. But the other question you want to ask yourself, what's the sequence of the eschatological events? Where's the rapture? Where is the Antichrist? When does he get revealed? When does he come to power? When does he break the covenant? What starts the great tribulation? Where does Jesus come in all of that? How are you going to lay that out? And who is this strange restrainer? There's a restrainer that's going to be removed. Who could that possibly be? You might even make a list of candidates. Well, maybe it's this or maybe it's that. Make a list. Make as long a list as you can. And I'll show you why it has to be. There's only one that fits the bill. But you want to go through that exercise to really understand. You won't really understand the answer if you don't understand the question. But I'm going to leave you with a challenge. You know, when I do public studies, I usually throw this out there. I'm going to do it here tonight because I think it fits the situation. I'm going to put something on the screen which if you accept what I put on the screen, you flunk the course. I want you to challenge this preposterous statement I'm going to put on the screen. That you and I are being plunged into a period of time about which the Bible says more than it does about any other period of time in human history, including the time that Jesus walked the shores of Galilee or climbed the mountains of Judea. Now that's a preposterous statement that the Bible is talking about the period of time we're entering with more detail, with more, there's more said about it, than any other period in, the, in, in history. Now that's preposterous. If you accept that, you flunk. How do you challenge that? You've got to do two things. You've got to first of all find out what the Bible really says. Not what your paraphrase conjectures. Not what the Jesus seminar voted on that he said or didn't say by their... Uh, anyway. No, this is not to be delegated to others. Find out for yourself what the Bible says. Now you have an example. Uh, you have a unusual exemplar situation today. The environment you have today is the most phenomenal environment in the history of mankind. The Word of God is more read, available to every one of us than it has ever been on the planet Earth before. Because we have advanced information appliances. Many people carry in their phone half a dozen different Bibles searchable in Greek or Hebrew. 
you can, uh, you can find out in a few moments with your information appliances. In, in less than a half an hour, you can learn more than a pastor could learn in, in a whole week in a library years ago. And it's all free, by the way. Some of it can cost money, doesn't need to. If you have a basic appliance, almost everything you want is available free of charge. And of course, there's the internet. All of man's knowledge is available to you with a few keystrokes if you know how to use it. And that includes biblical knowledge. And of course, the other thing you have today are small groups. I have not, in my 60 years of being a Christian, the place I've seen people invariably grow is in small groups, 6 to 12. Small enough to answer questions, to ask questions without embarrassment. Small enough to hold each other accountable. More than 12, it starts to become something else. That's not bad, but different. Okay, that's item one. Find out what the Bible really says. Not what Chuck Missler says, what the Bible really says. But the second thing you've got to do won't happen automatically. It takes some diligence. Find out what's really going on, and you will not have any chance of understanding what's going on by watching the, week, the evening news broadcast. Because it's prostituted to an agenda of their own. Tragically. It's one of the many areas of corruption that is destroying our, the entire fabric of our society. The corruption in the press, the corruption in our schools, the corruption in our courts, the corruption in our, very, in our political system. Okay. Okay. Find out what's really going on. Pilate re- so cynically asked, what is truth? Well, we're asking the same question. Find out what's true. Yes, you can answer. Well, Christ is, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Okay, but that's not a cliche. That's a very important fundamental statement. You don't resolve this with cliches. What you've got to do is find out what's really true. Everything you see has got a bias. Everything you use, everything you've got has an agenda. You've got to sift through that to figure out what's really going on. Crucial. Because we live in the age of deceit. Satan's primary weapon for your destruction is deceit. And don't be surprised when you find that deceit in the pulpits. You need to be armed yourself with the Word of God. You need to be able to discern. Well, what's your action plan? What's God calling you to do? How many of you are saved? Can I see a show of hands? Praise God. My next question is, what have you done with it? Why were you saved? It was to bear fruit. Lots of Scripture. You can drown you in Scriptures on that one. You weren't saved to put your feet on a desk and be a silent witness. <laughs> As A. Allen used to say, apparently, if you, were, if you were on trial for being Christian, is there enough evidence to convict you? <laughs> I'm going to suggest that God is not finished with any one of us. That we, every one of us, me included, are a work in progress. And I suggest we all need to raise the bar on a personal walk. We're in a new year here. We're celebrating year. Every time I write a checkbook, I can't believe the year I have to put down. I haven't gotten ready. I haven't gotten used to the last one. I got a new one here already. The question is, am I progressing spiritually? Is my spiritual hygiene, my spiritual condition today any different than it was a year ago? What an indictment if there hasn't been some advance. Raise the bar on your personal walk. How do you do that? Well, it includes a lot of things, getting rid of the baggage that you probably should shed, but it's also... It's going to involve, for sure, committing yourself to a systematic program to really learn your Bible. Well, I read it every day. That's devotional reading. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a systematic study, verse by verse, and it's a lifetime deal. I read the Bible through once. Only once? No, no. 
Study it. Don't just read it. Study it. Understand it. Commit yourself. That's a lifetime quest. It's a treasure hunt. It's one of the most satisfying things you'll ever do. The more you learn about it, the more you'll enjoy it. The more you enjoy it, the more you'll learn about it. The other thing you want to do, the way you want to do that, you can do a systematic program on your own. Some people, few of us can do that on our own, get, make some progress. Most of us don't. Most of us do better in a small group. Having a partner, two or three, and doing it together, whatever. That's one reason in the Institute now that the children of a parent, if the parent's a member, are, are enrolled free. They can be getting college credit when they're still in their teens, whatever. Anyway, join or start, if you can't find one, a small study group. That's where people, you don't have to be a, a teacher to to lead a group. You pop a DVD of the thing and talk about it a little bit. Anyone can lead a discussion and make sure that one person doesn't dominate and have everybody... You know, there's, there's tricks to make it successful and so forth. But start a small group. But whatever you do, I'm going to encourage every one of you to pray about it and whatever God calls you to do, just respond right now. I mean, today. Think about it. Pray about it. And, and commit yourself to a program for your coming king. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. That's by our hearts. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you've taken the trouble to teach us what's coming. We thank you, Father, for the imminent return of our coming King. We pray, Father, that you would help us to make that the primary priority in our lives. We know, Father, that we cannot bear fruit but by the Holy Spirit. So we do pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit, in accordance with your word, will help each of us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, that we each might be more effective stewards of the opportunities that you're placing before us. We pray, Father, that we would be more pleasing in your sight as we commit ourselves, without any reservations whatsoever, into your hands, in the name of our coming King, our Lord Jesus Christ, Yeshua, in whose name we commit ourselves. Amen. God bless you. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 2 Thessalonians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, please visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.